me try that again. Good afternoon, Covenant Hope Church. It's a joy to gather with you guys to praise the Lord together, to remember the good news together of salvation in Christ. We conclude our series. It's been a short series, three weeks in Micah. So if you will turn with me in your Bibles, we'll be looking at Micah chapter 6 and 7. Micah is one of those small books at the end of the Old Testament that's hard to find, so I'll give you a second to turn there. As you turn there, let me just remind you a little of what we've seen so far. We're concluding this three-week series in Micah because Micah contains three, uh, a trilogy of prophecies from the Lord, prophecies that can uh, concern judgment and salvation. Each one has an element of judgment followed by an element of salvation. It's like a, it's like a song, like a, a piece of music. It has repeating minor keys of judgment and then major keys of salvation. And so, if, if Micah were a symphony, this last final word is like the cre- crescendo. It's the climax of the piece of music. It's the culmination of everything that the author has been saying so far as he concludes his message to us. So, as we turn there now, as you turn to Micah 6 and 7, let's go to the Lord again and ask for His help as we study His Word. Heavenly Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in Your sight. O Lord, You are our rock, and You are are our Redeemer. Amen. So, as I said, our passage aims to highlight both God's judgment and salvation, God's judgment and God's salvation, and it does so by beginning with a courtroom scene and ending with a choir. In the courtroom scene, we hear a sentence for sin, and then the choir sings a song of salvation. That's what we'll see in chapters 6 and 7. That will be our two points for the sermon, a sentence for sin and a song of salvation. And through these two parts, we'll learn the answer to the question that the prophet's name asks. Micah means, who is like Yahweh? Who is like the God of Israel? Who is like the Lord? And so, we'll hear an answer to that question as we study this conclusion to the book in chapter 6 and 7. So, first, let's consider a sentence for sin. We find that in chapter, all of chapter 6 and the first seven verses of chapter 7. So, just look there with me, beginning in chapter 6, verse 1. Our final prophecy opens in a courtroom, and the Lord calls His people to take the stand. Look there in verse 1. It says, hear what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voices. And so, the Lord is calling His people to the stand to defend themselves as He brings accusations, and He calls the whole world from top to bottom, from mountaintop height to the foundations of the earth to listen, to stand as He accuses His people. 
to listen as he presents his case against them. And so the Lord is, he's like a a skilled lawyer here, and he cross-examines the nation of Judah with questions. He asks, oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? And the defendant stands speechless. They make no response, and so he says, answer me. Do you feel the tension? The drama, it's, it's palpable. You can feel it. And it's especially, it's especially clear in the repetition of, oh, my people that we see here. These are God's people that He is bringing accusations against. You can feel His, his heart for them, but also the disappointment. The Lord begins by passionately recounting the history of their relationship, the the relationship between the Lord God Himself and the people of Israel. He says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt, and I redeemed you from the house of slavery. God hadn't wearied His people. God had liberated His people. He had redeemed them. He set them free. This is, of course, it's referring to the deliverance that we see and read about in the book of Exodus, where God saved His people from the enslaving power of Pharaoh and Egypt. In this book, Exodus, that's where we actually see the nation of Israel birthed. When they come to Mount Sinai and God makes a covenant with them and says, you're going to be my treasured possession. You're going to be my people. He's purchased them. But God didn't only save them. No, He he didn't just save them out of Egypt. He led them. He led them through the wilderness. And He provided leaders for them, like Moses and Aaron and Miriam, who provided political, priestly, and prophetic guidance and direction for His people. But God didn't only save His people and lead them. He also provided protection for them all along their journey through the wilderness to the promised land. Look there at verse 5 of chapter 6. Oh, my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam son of Beor answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gilgal that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. The Lord reminds them of His protection all along the way from Egypt to the promised land of Canaan. You can read about Balak's scheme to have Balaam curse the people in Numbers chapters 22 to 24, but how God kept Balaam from cursing the people, and rather He pronounced blessings on the people. God protects His people in wonderful ways. And the final thing that the Lord calls to mind is what happened between Shittim and Gilgal. And maybe you're wondering, Mark, I've never heard of Shittim or Gilgal. Maybe your biblical geography is a little rusty. Mine was too. But God brought them from Shittim, which was on the east side of the Jordan, when they had not yet entered the Promised Land, into Gilgal, which was on the west side of the River Jordan, We read about that in Joshua chapter 3 and 4, and he tells of how God brought them through the river of 
the, the Jordan River on dry ground. He parted the waters so that they could go through into the promised land that He had sworn to their father. God saved. God provided. God led. God protected all the way. All the way from their life in slavery in Egypt, all the way to the land of promise, flowing with milk and honey. Part of the reason that they're standing there in the dock is because they had forgotten what God had done for them. They failed to recount all that the Lord had done to them and for them. Rather than recognizing how amazingly gracious and good He had been to them as a people, they thought of His covenant as a burden rather than a blessing. You know, we too can slide into thinking of our Christian lives as a burdensome duty. That God has just required wearying works for us to do. We think we have to read our Bibles. That's what Christians should do. Oh, we have to pray. I know I should do that. Oh, I have to go to church week after week. I've got to spend time in fellowship with God's people. I better do that. Oh, I really should start loving others in sacrificial ways. Rather than thinking, I get to gather with God's people. I'm delighted to love and care for brothers and sisters in the church. What a privilege it is to gather to worship the Lord each week. That's the high point of my week. And it's because we forget to remember what God has done for us. When we forget the good news of God's salvation, His grace towards us, we fail to see what a joy and privilege it is to do all the things that God has called us to. We forget that God has rescued us. We forget that God is guiding us. We forget that God has protected us, that He's leading us, and He's leading us homeward to the promised land of heaven, the new Jerusalem, a new heaven and a new earth. And so, brothers and sisters, let me let me call you to recount what God has done for you to yourself. To help yourself revel in what God has called you to do. Recount what God has done for you to help you revel, that is to enjoy, what God has called you to do. In other words, preach the gospel to yourself. It means remembering who you once were. You were slaves. You were in slavery to sin and Satan. You were in bondage to sin. It means remembering what God did to save you, how He drew you to Himself through providing His Son, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And remember who that makes you now. You're ransomed. You're redeemed. You were slaves, but now you're free from sin. You were in bondage, but now you've been adopted into God's family. You've become sons and daughters of God Most High, and you were bought by Him, by the precious blood of Christ spilled at the cross. The Lord 
follows up this series of questions about what he follows up this recounting of the history with a series of questions about what he requires of his people in verses 6 and 7, which he answers there in verse 8 as well. It's as if the judge is now reciting the law to the people. He wants them to be clear of the charges that are being brought against him. God's people have not only forgotten what he's done for them, but they'd forgotten what he expected of his people. They've forgotten what He called for them to do in response to His salvation in their lives. So, He asks, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before Him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams and ten thousands of rivers of oil? The questions become more and more exaggerated and extreme. They escalate in their intensity as the thing that's being offered to come before the Lord that's suggested becomes more and more lavish, more and more valuable to the giver. And it begins with burnt offerings. Burnt offerings were the most costly form of offering in the Old Covenant because the burnt offering was burnt up entirely. There was no portion left for the, for the, for the person that made the offering, for the worshiper. And then he mentions a a year-old calf, and these were worth a lot because they provided the most tender meat, the the best portion of the meat. But then the the offerings just multiply off off the charts. They become almost ludicrous. What about a thousand rams? Should I offer a thousand rams to come into the Lord's presence? What about ten thousands of rivers of oil? That's just ludicrous. Is is that really what God wants from His people? Is that enough to pay the debt for their disobedience, for their sin? The people were starting to think of God the way that the judges and rulers were behaving in Judah, that they were rulers who could be bought off with a, a bribe. They were judges who could be paid off to let them be excused for their guilt. And God had given instructions about making offerings and sacrifices, but they had twisted them. They had twisted them into a system of doing what they wanted and then paying God off at the end, which they were never meant to be. It's like thinking of your speeding tickets when you drive down Shakeside Road and the camera flashes and just thinking, oh, that's fine. When I go to re-register my car, I'll just pay all the bills. Rather than seeing it as as an incentive to stop speeding, you think, I'll just pay the thousands of bucks at the end of the year. Or in some offices, in some businesses, or even some households, they have what's called a, a swear jar, a jar where you put money when you curse to try and keep you from cursing. But imagine you showed up at at work, and there's a swear jar there, and you just thought, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll stick a thousand dirham note in there, and then I can drop as many F-bombs as I like. That is not the way it's intended to be taken. This is how they were seeing God's law. Finally, he asks, what's the most precious thing that they could offer to the Lord? Look there at the end of verse 7. Shall I give my firstborn? for my transgression? 
the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Shall I give my child? Should I give Charlotte to pay the debt for my sin? These idolatrous worship practices that were going on at this time, some of them did offer their children to Molech and other gods to try and appease the God or to get the God to give them what they wanted. They started to think of God not the way He is. They twisted Him into some false God. And they failed to see that all of these sacrifices that were written in the Old Testament, that the the covenant that God had given them was meant to guide their hearts into deeper faithfulness to God, into deeper fellowship and a relationship with Him, to see the costliness of sin and how offensive it is. A relationship that should have been marked by loyal love between God and His people. Not a check-the-box religiosity to keep God off your back or keep God on your side. But this is fallen man's natural inclination to seek to do things to earn ourselves a standing before God. To work off the weight of the burden of guilt that hangs so heavy on our shoulders. We try to to balance the scales between our good deeds and our bad deeds and hope that God will Make it okay for us. That we'll be counted good enough for God. Even like we see here, sometimes we try to do massive, grandiose displays of commitment to God. One-off huge offerings. A thousand rams. Ten thousands rivers of oil. But God's not interested in our outward displays of religiosity when they aren't accompanied by a heart that's truly committed to Him, a heart that's seeking to be faithful to Him and to keep His commandments. Many of the religions around the world today attempt to do this very thing, to buy God off with good deeds or something else. Fast for a month for Ramadan. Do the puja. Karma, outweigh your good with your bad, or your bad with your good, rather. Give to the poor. Pray five times a day. Say ten Hail Marys. Go to confession. Take the Mass. But there are even Christianized, Protestant, evangelical ways of doing this too. Versions of it. We're tempted to think that we can do things that can earn us a place before God. I prayed a really, really sincere prayer prayer when I was six years old with my mom. And since then I haven't stepped foot in a church, but I know that I did that. And that was enough. I took my family to church every week. God must be pleased with me. He'll definitely accept me. I prayed before every meal. I read my Bible morning and evening. These aren't necessarily bad things to do, by the way. I attended men's and women's fellowships. And the list goes on and on. Jesus even talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount. People who will come to Him. People who will say, oh Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Imagine standing in the dock of a court and God is there 
as the judge and you plead your case before him, what will you offer him for the sin of yourselves? What can you offer to give to God? It's all his anyway. No amount of sacrifices or offerings or prayers or good deeds can be given for the sins of our souls. Nothing we could offer, not even if the whole world belonged to us, could atone for our sins. And that's not what God wanted or required of His people anyway. So what does God want? Look with me at verse 8. He tells us, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice? and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. God had saved His people out of bondage in Egypt. He guided them through the wilderness and brought them into the land of of Canaan. He took them to Mount Sinai. He covenanted Himself with there, and then He led them in so that they would be His people, so that they would know Him and love Him and reflect Him to the world around them, to all the nations of the earth. And that they would do this in three ways. They would do it first, they would do it by doing justice. But keep in mind, keep in mind that the rulers and the officials had actually been obstructing justice by taking bribes. God had intended for His people to act justly as a nation, to ensure that wrongdoing was punished appropriately, and that the socially inferior were protected from oppression and being taken advantage of, to protect the weak and to punish the wicked. That was what it meant to do justice. Secondly, they were to love kindness. Now, the idea of kindness in in the Bible is much broader than the sense that we often use that word today. It's, It's so much more than just being nice to people. No, kindness here is it's much deeper. It's, it's, it has the sense of faithful love, the, the kind of covenant love that we have, have been thinking about over these last three weeks. Loyalty. But even, even more than love and loyalty, it has the, the idea of mercy behind it, kindness to the weakest, to the people who need help. It's a care for someone who is in misfortune seeking to meet their needs, to care for them. And that's what should mark God's people. That's what should mark Judah, and it it should mark us as Christians. Again, we're reminded of the stark contrast between the people in in Micah's day in Judah and uh, the things that God had required of them. Finally, they they were called to walk humbly with their God. This was the greatest requirement for the people was to walk with their God. Here, the the idea to walk with someone means to have genuine, ongoing friendship and fellowship. It's to accept God's vision and values for our lives, to commune humbly with Him, recognizing that He is our Creator and we're the creature. But it's amazing to think that we could walk with the Lord that we could have a relationship with God. Now, these three things that were required of them, there's literally endless ways that we could apply each of these simple requirements, but there's something that inextricably links all three of them. 
And we see it in the progression that they, they make. With each one, the stakes gets raised. The stakes get higher. Did you notice that? Look back at verse 8. First, they were expected to do something. Action. Second, they were called to love something. That gets deeper than action. That gets to the affections. We're not just to do what's right out of duty sense, but out of a genuine desire and a love for others. Finally, they were called to walk with God. Justice and kindness are who God is. To walk with God means to have fellowship and friendship, and we enjoy friendship and fellowship with God, and as we enjoy it more and more, our affections become more and more aligned to His affections. The things He loves, we love. The things He hates, we hate. And where our hearts go and our affections go, then our hands and feet will follow in good deeds. God doesn't want mindless minions who just simply follow orders or even who just do what is right for rightness sake. God wants our hearts. We are made for friendship with God. God wants friendship with His people. And this is unlike any religion in the world because God isn't only transcendent. The Bible teaches that. We see that. He's far and away above us. But God is also personal. He calls us to come to Himself and to walk with us each and every day. Walking with God is more than one-off grandiose ex- uh, expressions of religiosity. It's day-to-day faithfulness, faithfulness and friendship with God. So, ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, how is your relationship with God? Do you know Him? Are you walking with Him? Do you speak with Him regularly? Do you pour out your heart, your burdens, your sorrows to Him in prayer? Are you listening to Him as, you're, as, as you spend your days in His Word? Or is your time in the Word a mere contractual obligation, a duty? Oh, I have to read my Bible. Does your time in the Word deepen your intimacy with God? Do you love Him more as a result over time? But it will go beyond just our relationship with the Lord. The reality is our relationship with Him always involves relationships with other people as well. His body, His bride, the church. When one breaks down, when our relationship with the Lord breaks down, our relationship with the church inevitably follows. That's what happened in Judah. Their relationship with God broke down, and so their relationships amongst the nation began to turn evil. So ask yourself, how are you treating brothers and sisters in the church? Do you love to care for them when they're in need? To extend mercy and kindness towards them, to overlook offenses when they wrong you or sin against you, and to treat them with sacrificial love? Is that a joy? It might be costly, but is it a delight to do so? But it will go even beyond the borders of the church as well. Our relationship with God impacts all our relationships, even with our enemies. Are you acting justly in your office? Are you making sure that those below you aren't being treated unfairly? So let me encourage you to take an order of your life. 
Meditate on these three expectations and ask yourself, how am I doing with each one? Beginning with walking humbly with the Lord, loving kindness, and doing justice. And then take these things to the Lord. Ask Him to help you to have deeper fellowship with Him, to love mercy, and to do what's right. What we have here is a summary of God's covenant commitment to His people. He saved them to Himself to bind Himself to them in loyal love, that they would be in an intimate relationship. But they had forsaken Him. They turned away to other idols. And so, having now laid out the case before them and the requirements of the covenant, God gives the verdict in verses 9 through 16. Look with me at 6, 9 to 16. Now God speaks to the whole city, that is Jerusalem, which stood for all of Judah, and the jury finds the defendant guilty. Verses 9 through 12 recount the crimes. Their homes are filled with illegally gained treasures or goods. They have deceitful business practices, that is, the deceitful scales and scant measures. That means that they were, they were, they were cheating them out by false scales, false measures, so that they gave the buyer less than he deserved for the money he paid, or they made him pay more than he should have paid for the small amount that they gave. But they were also not only deceitful in their business, they were full of violence, they were full of lies. So, God now pronounces the sentence against them. It says, therefore, I will strike you with a grievous blow. I'll make you desolate because of your sins. He says, they'll eat, but not be satisfied. They'll save, but it will be pointless. They'll sow, but they won't reap. They'll tread olives and grapes, but they won't enjoy the wine and the oil. And these these phrases here might sound strange to us, but these are a very clear echo of God's covenant curses that were laid out for His people in Deuteronomy chapter 30. You can go and read that later. God is saying here, I'm going to keep my word to you. You might not be keeping your word to me, but I'm going to keep my word to you. I will follow through on what I've said I will do if you disobey. If you are faithless, I will bring curses. And so, that's what God promises to do. That's the sentence for their sin. They hadn't feared the Lord, but now they would fear the Lord because He would bring about these judgments on them. He'll make Judah desolation, an empty place where no one lives, and the people will go into exile. Chapter 7, verses 1 to 7, turn from the sentence that God pronounces to the defendant's response. Look at verses 1 to 7 of chapter 7. Now, Micah speaks representing and leading the nation, and he cries out in a lament, a, a, a sorrowful a proclamation of their sin, and he, he acknowledges and confesses their sin. And what we see here at the beginning of chapter 7 is a, is a model for us. We can learn from Micah's example here of how to repent. So, look with me. It begins with him crying out, woe is me. He, he, he recognizes first the, the dire situation because of their sin. He likens the situation to a harvester or a fruit picker turning up at the, at the field after the harvest has already been taken. There's nothing left. There's no fruit on the trees or on the vine. 
But in this picture, the, the fruit represents godly people. He's saying there is not one godly person left in Judah. No one is good, only evil. And then he compares them to hunters seeking to shed blood. Their hands are so practiced, they've gotten so good at sin that they, they've practiced sin and their hands are good at it, and even their lips utter evil things. The very best of the people in Judah are like a briar or a bush that's covered in sharp thorns. So rather than producing nourishment, it only produces pain and suffering. Again, we, we see picture after picture of how wicked sin is. Mike has done this throughout this book, but he goes even further. Look at verses 5 and 6. He says their, their wickedness has affected every relational sphere of their life. They can't trust the neighbors. They can't trust the friends. They can't even trust the person who lies in their arms. They can't trust their spouse. Imagine lying in bed and the person lying next to you, you can't even trust. Their sin has turned what ought to be the closest relationships in their lives, the most loving and faithful relationships in their lives into utter warfare. Whole families are at war with one another. Micah, now he acknowledges their sin and he doesn't minimize it. He doesn't ignore it. He sees how bad it is and all the ways that it affects us. Brothers and sisters, our sin is going to affect each and every one of us. It's going to hurt our relationships. It'll break down your friendships. It will break down trust in your marriage. It will break down families. And the first step towards restoration and reconciliation is recognizing our own sin for what it is and grieving over it, mourning over it. Do you catch yourself minimizing your sin? or mourning over your sin? Do you think, do you find yourself thinking, or maybe even saying at times, it's re really not such a big deal when you've hurt a friend by some harsh word you've used, or a housemate, or a spouse, or your child, when you treat them in ways that aren't kind, that aren't merciful, that aren't seasoned with love, you think, well, it's not such a big deal. It's not the end of the world when you treat them in ways that you wouldn't want to be treated. That's not how we should view our sin. Ask yourself, is there relational damage in your life right now with a brother or sister because of your sin? Let me encourage you, do what Micah does. Own your sin, confess it to God, confess it to them, and ask for forgiveness. Seek to earn back the trust that may be lost between you. Not only does Micah model acknowledging his sin, but he sees that sin has huge consequences. Look there at the second half of verse 4. He says, the day of the watchman of your punishment has come. The watchmen sat on the city wall. They looked for invading forces or enemies coming to see when they were coming to sound the alarm, and their enemy was coming. Their punishment has come. Their exile would soon be upon them. It was at hand. 
Sin bears serious consequences. Sin leaves us condemned before God. Sin leaves scars on our lives. It damages our friendships. It damages our marriages. And we must come to terms with that and see that sin is costly. Repentance looks like owning our sin, recognizing its consequences, facing them. But it also finally results in looking to God for hope. We see that at the conclusion there in verse 7. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. We don't simply face our sin and then wallow in guilt. We acknowledge and confess it and we turn to the Lord. We wait for the God of our salvation. He alone can save. He alone can forgive. He alone can restore what sin has destroyed. And the passage now shifts from this courtroom scene with this wailing and weeping defendant to a beautiful song of salvation. That's our second point. We see in chapter 7, verses 8 to 20, a song of salvation. The song contains four song verses or stanzas, not the Bible verses, but it contains like sections, and you'll see that your Bible should break them down in uh, paragraphs there. And the first three stanzas highlight two aspects of the salvation that God provides. First, salvation means that their sentence, their sentence for sin will be reversed. They'd been told that they were guilty. They'd been sentenced to judgment. But look there at verses 8 and 9. Micah says, they will fall, but they shall rise again. They will sit in darkness, but the Lord will be a light to them. They'll bear indignation, but the Lord will turn from being their judge to being their advocate, their defense attorney. He will plead their cause, and He will vindicate them. They will be found not guilty. Then look in verses 11 and 12. A day is coming when the walls of security around them, they will be rebuilt. Jerusalem would be defeated, the walls would be destroyed, but a day was coming when the kingdom would be extended beyond Jerusalem to include peoples from Assyria in the north to Egypt in the south and from sea to sea, north to south, east to west. And verses 14 and 15, we see there their salvation will be like a new garden of Eden, a perfect place to graze. And it will be like a new exodus as well, as they're brought out of slavery once again. God will show them marvelous things. Their salvation means their sentence will be reversed, but the second thing we see is that their enemies will be repaid. We see that in verse 10 and 13 and 16 and 17. God will conquer His people's enemies. Just as God had done when He defeated Pharaoh in Egypt and the Philistines in Canaan, God will once again defeat their enemies. Those who had acted wickedly towards them and mocked them and scorned them and refused to acknowledge their God would be conquered, would be defeated. And look at verses 10 and 17. Look how they describe the conquering of the enemies. 
says they will be trampled down. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. We see echoes of our first enemy here. Not just their human enemies, but their spiritual enemy, the ancient serpent, Satan himself, and echoes of the promise that he'll be crushed underfoot by a son of woman. Micah knows God will keep His promises, every single one of them, including the one that's in Genesis chapter 3. The people have broken their covenant with God, but God will not break His covenant with His people. He will fulfill His promises to crush the serpent's head. He will bless the whole world through Abraham's offspring. He will sit a king on David's throne forever and ever, and He will not fail. Friends, rejoice in the knowledge that God keeps every single one of His promises to save His people and to restore them and to conquer their enemies. That's what this song is all about. This song is all about God's salvation. And in response, we see in the final verses, verses 18 to 20, a glorious reflection of the God who is our Savior. Here we hear the answer to the question that Micah's name raises, who is like the Lord? We've seen God, He's awesome in power. We saw that He melts mountains. He's all-knowing. He knows all of their sin. He's sovereign. He's in control of all things. But here, here in the conclusion of Micah's book, he reflects not on God's sovereignty and His power, but on His mercy and His love and His faithfulness. God pardons sinners, it says, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression. He won't only conquer His enemies and Satan, He will also conquer His people's greatest enemy, their own sin. He will tread their iniquities underfoot. He will cast all of their sins into the depths of the sea where no one can reach. God won't be angry with them forever. He will show compassion on His wayward people. And why? It's because He delights. He delights in steadfast love. In this final oracle, we've seen two aspects of God's immeasurable glory. We began by considering the courtroom, where we see God as judge, holy and just. And He will right every wrong. Sin will by no means go unpunished. But here, at the conclusion, the last thing Micah wants us to know is that he delights in steadfast love, that he is full of compassion, that he is merciful, that he will plead the cause of his people and their case, that he himself will deal with their sins. And how these two pictures of God, his holy justice and His steadfast love and mercy, how they can fit together, Micah didn't see fully, but we do. And we're about to see in the Lord's Supper as we take the the cup and the bread, and as we sing in just a few moments' time, we're going to hear of this good news of how God's love and mercy and His justice can meet. God provides the offering that we never could provide for our sins. We stood beneath a debt that we could never afford. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. 
God provided the sacrifice His justice demands so that we might be recipients of His steadfast love. He was sentenced for sin so that we could go free and be saved. God provided His own Son to live a sinless life and to offer a perfect substitute, a sacrifice for sinners. The Son willingly offered up His life as an atonement for sin. Greater love has no man than this, than that He lay His life down for His friends. Jesus laid down His life for His friends so that we could be His friends. And He rose triumphant from the grave on the third day, showing that the debt was paid, justice had been satisfied, and that we now might be declared righteous through faith. What glorious news this is for sinners like us, Brothers and sisters, this is our song. This is our hope. This is what we live for. But friends, if you're here and you are not a Christian, if you're not walking with the Lord, if you're not in a relationship with Him, this song can be yours too. All you must do is acknowledge your sin before God. Trust in the saving work of His Son and walk humbly with Him from this day forward. So, who is like the Lord? No one. No one is like God. He alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our trust. He alone is worthy of following. Let's go to Him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that no one is like You. Lord, not only are You holy and just and righteous and all-knowing, but You are gracious, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, that You are compassionate on those who do not deserve compassion, that You are forgiving towards those who do not deserve forgiveness, that you are loving towards those who do not deserve your love, and that you do not retain your anger forever, but instead you delight in steadfast love. Oh, Lord, help us to see you for who you are. Help us to walk humbly before you. Help us to love kindness. Help us to do justice. We ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.